Support for Boston Public Radio comes from the University of Massachusetts Amherst. Be revolutionary. UMass is the Commonwealth's flagship public research university and committed to the relentless pursuit of progress. Learn more at umass.edu. And Newberry Court, a full-service retirement community in Concord, Massachusetts. Newberry Court is committed to creating active, independent lifestyles for persons 62 and over. More at newberrycourt.org. I'm Jim Browning. And I'm Marjorie Egan. This is the best of Boston Public Radio, a new daily podcast from GBH featuring our favorite conversations from our three-hour radio show in under 40 minutes. Don't panic. If you love filling your phone with episodes of our full show podcast, you can still find it anywhere you get your podcast or just catch us live on 89.7 GBH starting at 11 o'clock. Today on the podcast, the world-renowned Takash Quartet is in its 49th season, originating from Hungary. They join us for Live Music Friday ahead of a show tonight at Jordan Hall. Then founder and president of Get Connected, Colette Phillips, is out with a new book, The Includers, The Seven Traits of Culturally Savvy Anti-Racist Leaders. She joins us to discuss how white allies can advocate for change in workplaces and communities. And here's the show. Phillips, President and CEO of Colette Phillips Communication, founder and president of the GK Fund and Get Connected with a K. One thing to add to her list, author. She's out now with really a fabulous new book. It's called The Includers, The Seven Traits of Culturally Savvy Anti-Racist Leaders, How White Allies Can Be Real Advocates in Their Workplaces and community, uh, Communities. Colette, congratulations. Great to see you. Thank you. Yeah, really thank you, Colette, very much for coming. Congratulations on the, on the new book. Before I get to what you were doing this new book, this is why you read people's books, because you learn so much about them. I didn't know you came here at 17 years old. Nor did I. And I, I'm going to mispronounce and. I've heard Antigua. It, Antigua, because I've heard it pronounced so many different ways. I yes. once got there, I thought it was paradise on earth, but you left there at 17 to come here. So tell us how that happened. Well, I came here to go to Emerson College. Mm-hmm. My brother, older brother, was going to school in New York, and I figured he didn't want to be responsible for his little sister. <laughs> and so he told my parents, you know, I think Boston is a nice place for her. It's very British. And since Antigua is a former British yep, colony, yep. he says, I think she'd fit in there. So, <laughs> came to Boston. And still here. And I'm still here. Okay. And before we talk about how, how the genesis of the book, you tell a brief story at the beginning of the book about how you got into the business. A lunch with some guy from Adweek. Tell us, <laughs> share that story, Colette Phillips. Yes. I had um, lunch with a guy named Ray Barron. Mm-hmm who was an oldie, goldie guy who had been in advertising and was a columnist for Adweek. And I sat with him, and I, because he had been in the business for a long time, and I said to him, I was thinking about starting a public relations and marketing company. And he looked at me, and he said, Darling, I don't think you want to do that. I said, why not? He said, before you do this, you should talk to Kendall Nash, who is the owner of, at the time, the only black radio station in Boston, WILD. He said, and he will tell you how difficult it is for a black person to get business from the business community. 
And I didn't think he was telling me that to be, you know, like unintentionally wicked or evil or anything. He wanted to spare me the frustrations. And so I did talk to Kendall, and he did tell me how difficult it was. And I decided I was still going to do this because I came from an entrepreneurial family. And, you know, I feel like if you really have a vision and you have a passion, you can't allow obstacles to prevent you from going after the vision. And you know what a host is supposed to say at that point? And the rest... Is history. Yeah, but, but you know, I mean, at Boston has changed in many ways. We, many. Have a, we obviously have a long way to go. But you talk about a time when the vault was not only just a bunch of white men. I think they were mostly all Protestant white men that went to Episcopal churches. And you really, if you were Well, explain black, what the vault is for those well, who don't Well, I'm going to ask oh, a, a college to explain. Yeah. And when you couldn't go to Charlestown, you couldn't go to the North End, you couldn't go to South Boston, you couldn't go to whole sections of or East Boston if you were black. That's so right. this was a really, and, and of course the busing stuff was all going on. So tell us about the vault. Well, the vault was made up of all the guys who, the white male Protestant men who were heads of banks and institutions like Blue Cross Blue Shield and uh, other, you know, like Bank, Bank of Boston. Bank of Boston. Yep. You had uh, Jan- John Hancock Insurance Company, Filene's and Jordan Marsh at the time. And these guys literally met in the bank vault. <laughs> and these, Very secret. <laughs> and these were the guys who sort of made decisions about Boston. What Boston was going to be very secretive. And so they were the vault. They were the sort of the... Um, you know, the leaders, the business leaders at the time who whispered in the ears of the mayor, the governor, the, they sort of told them what they needed to do. Why did so, you write the book there, Colette Phillips? What was the point? I wrote the book because I felt we were at a seminal point in, Boston, in not just Boston, but the country, and this was during COVID, and everybody who knows me knows that I am usually out three, four nights a week. And with COVID, I had nowhere to go. Where was after, you know, 10 different Zooms, at the end of the day, you're saying, what, I need to do something productive. So I thought I would write this book. And I was going to use my experience because I felt that... Um, there was just this whole divisiveness that had gone on. We had just had the George Floyd incident. And there was a racial awakening in this country. And I thought, this is a seminal moment. And one of the things I was noticing is that with the diversity, equity, and inclusion movement, it was sort of saying, okay, diversity, equity, and inclusion is only four women and people of color. And I'm like, wait a minute. Now you're creating another barrier to perpetuate biases against a certain group of people, white men. And if you're smart, if you think about who are the people who occupy the positions of power in government, in sports, in business, you name it, 
It's white male. So you cannot talk about inclusion and exclude the very people who have the power to make the change. But that, the takeaway for me <laughs> on that point, which is central to your book, it's, mu- it's more about pragmatism Absolutely. than it is principle. I'm not saying you're unprincipled, but it's not because you're <laughs> worried that white men are going to be discriminated against, but they have the power. If you want inclusion, they have to be included in the conversation. Absolutely. Okay. And I, I think the path to diversity, equity, and inclusion has got to be radical anti-exclusion. We can't exclude anyone from the conversation. The subtitle of your book, The Includers, The Seven Traits of Culturally Savvy Anti-Racist Leaders, The Seven Cs. We don't have time for seven. Give us a couple that are central, Colette, and explain why they're so key. I think character. Character is driven by integrity. Character means you are willing to stand in your integrity and do the right thing. It's something that is innate to every single person. Somebody who jumps in the way of a train and lay his body across a person he doesn't know. That's in, that is character. Which actually happened. Which actually in happened City. in New York City. Yep. yep. A veteran, and, Vietnam and, and, veteran. And the other is cultural intelligence. You are, you are the father of two girls who are Asian-American. I am, correct. Yes. That is correct. And so it, people need to get out of their comfort zone because the natural instinct of human beings is that we all want to be with the people that look like mm-hmm. us, that we are comfortable with. And life begins at the end of your comfort zone. You have to understand if you're a business person doing business in a global environment. You can't walk in to talk to the people in India, in China, in the Middle East, and then walk in with a group of people who none of whom look like the people you're trying to do business with. It's just not smart. So cultural intelligence allows us to tap into... It's Anthony Bourdain. The best cultural intelligent person I could think that's a great point and so I'm always looking to see where is he going to be he gets to know the people sits with them break bread with them get to know their culture that's cultural intelligence and I would say perhaps one of the most important one is courage because it takes courage you know people say to me so you're now promoting and advocating white guys white guys get everything (laughs) you know they don't My attitude is, yes, they get everything, and because they are willing to do what they do and go out there, advocate for women, for people of color, that's courageous. They don't have to do it. They already have the power. Why do they need to care about diversity and equity? The fact that people like Bob Rivers, people like... Ron O'Hanley, Eastern Bank, Bank, who's involved in virtually everything in this Absolutely. He is the go-to guy, the go-to white guy when it comes to DE&I. So the fact that these people are doing that, to me, takes courage. Brian Monaghan, in 2015, this is long before Bank of America, long before... 
we had George Floyd. He started a series of conversations with his employees of color, particularly his black employees, that he dubbed courageous conversations because he wanted to know how are they fitting into the culture of BOA? What can he be doing more to help move more people up the ladder? But you know, Colette Phillips. That's the white men that can jump, right? Yes. Okay. So it, that, I love that <laughs> Whites phrase. Whites who can jump. Yes. yes. White men who can but jump. But you know, yes. uh, some would argue. I hate when some people do argue. that. I would argue. <laughs> I hate when they, you know, interviewers when they you do would that. Ar- you would argue. You're either writing this book at the worst time or the like best time. time. Uh, this anti-DEI thing from the Ackmans of the world over at Harvard to the Supreme Court of the United States, we've talked ad nauseum yes. about how corporations that embrace DEI with a passion the day after the murder of George Floyd are quietly slinking away when the pressure is not there, then the higher education decision. So is it the best time? Well, obviously, you're going to say the best time, not the worst time to write the book. Why is it the best time in this era of... Well, Running away from DEI. It's the best time because our country is becoming more and more culturally diverse. 85% of the new people entering the workforce are women, people of color, and immigrants. Mm -hmm. And therefore, it makes sense. You know, when people think of diversity, equity, and inclusion, they think of it sort of, it's not musical chairs. When the music stops, you're not in front of a chair, you fall out. (laughs) It's the Thanksgiving table. And what do we do at a Thanksgiving table? We cook more food, we add more chairs, everybody gets a meal, everybody gets to sit and enjoy themselves. That's how we should view DE&I. I mean, I think the founding fathers of this country, even back then, even when black people were not considered fully human, they knew that there were people coming to this country from different places. And in their wisdom, they created the Latin term, e pluribus unum, out of many we are one people. And we have to keep remembering that in America. This is what makes us different. We are, I consider us, as the example that the world can look at Different people, different backgrounds, different religion, living together, coexisting peacefully. So you're a lot more optimistic than I think sometimes I feel these days with all the things that are going on in the world. Where's that, where's that come from? It comes from, I think, my parents. They instilled in me a faith that God will see you through, no matter what the circumstances are, a strong faith, and a belief in that people, like people might say that Anne Frank was, you know, that people are really good at heart, Yeah, and that we have to believe in that glimmer of hope and possibility. And you mentioned an entrepreneurial family. Tell us about that. My father was a serial entrepreneur on the island of Antigua. He had multiple businesses going on, an insurance company, a winery, a liquor store, a grocery store. So it was in my blood to be an entrepreneur. And so uh, my mother was one of the first um, women to have to go into the retail business, which was dominated by men and primarily um, men from... Portugal and the Middle East and Britain. 
Yeah. And um, so I grew up with two parents who were entrepreneurs. So no surprise that I end up becoming an entrepreneur because that's what I saw. Did you think you were going to go back to the island when oh, you I left? Oh, I did go back. For, I went for a back long time. to Antigua and I worked as the press secretary to the prime minister. I was like the Oprah of Antigua. <laughs> <laughs> I can believe that. I had a talk oh, yeah. show called Let's Talk. Wow. Wow. Yes, this was in the 70s, late 70s, and then I came back to Boston to do my master's Okay, and said to my parents, oh, I'm going to stay for two years. My 93-year-old mother, who I'm going to see today in oh. Atlanta, oh. says to me, you realize it's been longer than 32 years <laughs> <laughs> that you've been away. So... Boston is my home. That's the voice of Claude Phillips, a great new book. And it is a great new book. The Includers, The Seven Traits of Culturally Savvy Anti-Racist Leaders. You know what the problem is with you, Claude Phillips? Let me tell you. Marjorie and I talk about you from time to time. That's right. We do. Anybody who everybody respects and likes, there's something going on. (laughs) No, I'm not kidding. Honestly, it is like I'm always searching when somebody talks to us about you. Yeah, what's the underside? What do we not know about you? <laughs> That's right. Pull Time for Phillips. true confessions here. True confessions. Come on. Okay. What's I am, the worst thing you ever did? The worst thing I ever did? <laughs> Come on. Oh, my gosh. Okay, close to the worst thing. I don't know. That's I, my point yeah. exactly. <laughs> yeah. I try to be optimistic, helpful, and, you know, I just, I don't believe in revenge. I know you The don't. best revenge is living well. That's right. Hey, Colette, Hear that, Jim? I, 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 well, don't talk to me about that. Thank <laughs> you. You know, we really had a, a, a great pleasure. We had two people on the show during the NAACP convention. Yes. Uh, Ricardo Pierre-Louis, who is uh, Lewis from the founder and CEO of Privé Parking. Yes. And Rose Tharam, also unbelievable, a Dorchester-based event firm, Rosemark Production. Uh, uh, one of the incredible, this is during the NAACP. Yes. Black entrepreneurs, and the commitment was made by the NAACP and the mayor. We're going to try to hire exclusively black entrepreneurs. They came pretty close. They did very well. Rose, who... Uh, an incredible story. Rose, who had done events for the President, President of, the of the United States, States of America. Yes. And Colette knows never, her, obviously. I, I had, you know her. Yeah, of course. Yeah. They yes. never had a contract in Boston. They did great during the convention. They got great celebration for the quality of their work. We had them back. Plus, she's such a dynamic personality. She is. She's a gorgeous-looking woman. Not that that should matter, but she is, and she's very charismatic and dynamic. Well, Ricardo's incredible. Well, they both too. are. Both they are. both are. But here's the end of the story that, that I think matters. That was when uh, the NAACP was in control. A person of color mayor was calling shots to, obviously, Michelle Wu. We had him back in the studio two months ago to say, okay, everybody at the NAACP convention said this is going to be a life-changing thing. It's not going to be just one week. Mm-hmm. It's going to be a life-changing. How's business in Boston? And while both of them said they were hopeful about a few things, Ricardo talked about a contract for a garage he was bidding for in the past that's gone to some publicly traded firm from California kind of thing. Uh, not a lot of business had come their way. So where's the disconnect uh, between what you're writing about in the best of times and what still isn't the best of times for many black uh, vendors and entrepreneurs in Boston? Well, I think it, it sometimes takes a while for things to shift. And I have to say that Mayor Wu is leading by example. She yeah. has actually made a goal of 25% of the procurement in the city of Boston, and so has the governor of the state. 
And I think when... Women you, and people of color. Is that y- what you're saying? Yes. yes. Contracts. To contracts. Yeah. And to encourage people, you have to almost incentivize people. When you hit them in the pocketbook, they get religion real fast. <laughs> and they understand that when you're coming to do business with the city or the state, you have to come with a diverse team. It, it's not being politically correct. You know, I hear... Ron DeSantis from uh, Florida and and Greg Abbott of Texas, you know, talking about this this wokeness as if there's something. So my question to them is, you have major Latinos constituents in your states. When you are running for office, do you ever prepare your literature in Spanish or you give it out in English to the Latino people? Well, if you do, because you want them to know what you're going to do and who you are, you have to put it in the language that is most comfortable for them. Is that wokeness or is that smart marketing? You know, so the hypocrisy of these people to talk about, oh, this is wake wokeness. It is smart. Well, also, sorry, there's, there's, there's all these women running the show now. I call it an estrogen surge. I mean, you've got the governor, <laughs> lieutenant governor, you've got the attorney general. general you've got, got the, the, the auditors. That's right, the auditor, uh, Diana Zaglo. Yeah, and I think that, I mean, that's a big difference in how uh, politicians Dynamic. look at the, yeah, they yes. look at what needs to be done, they look at the world. all came to be, and what does Takash mean? Uh, Gabor Takash was our original leader, but only in the first 17 years. And uh, we moved to the States uh, to the express invitation of the University of Colorado in Boulder, who had an admirable past of supporting chamber music. Juilliard Quartet, Hungarian Quartet were frequent guests and they always got major support from the university itself. We got invited uh, almost 40 years ago and we loved the place. We stayed and it's the ideal venue to return to and then travel all over. By the way, it's the ideal venue because that's the state that threw Trump off the ballot. But we will not get into that with these particular gentlemen. How did the four of you come together there, Edward? Um, so I was studying at uh, Juilliard School uh, uh, in early in 93, and they were looking for a new first violinist. My teacher um, uh, recommended me, and I got so lucky to go out for one snowy day in January, and it seemed like it would be a great adventure if they chose me, and then they did. It's, you know, this is, uh, Marjorie has been listening to classical music, chamber music her whole life. I'm a late, My mother was a musician, that's I, why. <laughs> I am a latecomer, but my sense is that we're experiencing a renaissance uh, of uh, an embrace of this kind of music. And maybe I'm just judging it by myself. Andras, is that, do you feel it as well or no? <laughs> I, I do feel it. Um, I'd love to think... Uh, many noble reasons why young people start quartet and also also uh, the recent difficulty playing in an orchestra and 
Because of so, COVID, you mean? Because of COVID? Yeah. Well, the finances, oh, finances, are, uh, finances yeah. are interesting most of the time, and uh, string quartet is difficult, but somehow, somehow a different, different piece of unit. Well, I remember you do 80 concerts a year. That's a lot of concerts, right? And, and even more practice. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Let's hope so. so. Is that because you're going to play 80 concerts so you make sure you can put food on the table? Or is it because, because classical musics don't generally, unless you get to some place like the Boston Symphony or the New York Philharmonic, the salaries are not what I think, rep, they don't represent the talent. Yeah, I think it's more that. To, to sound really unified, I mean, a quartet's kind of like a family, and to sound really unified, it's something you want to keep doing and really get to know each other, and it's a little bit easier, actually, to, to sort of keep playing. Do you have to like each other? It's, it helps a lot. <laughs> the... And do you? Yeah, I mean, you should ask this gentleman. We've been playing, to, we've been playing together for 31 years. We are, we, are, we are flattered by each other. That I think we love each other much more than usual, or, or much more than, than we should be. Yeah. <laughs> That's actually a beautiful sentiment, particularly in these times. You're going to play for us, and then your two colleagues are going to join us and play again. But my understanding of the program tonight is Haydn, then at the end, Beethoven, and this, can I call it a fairly radical piece in the middle? How does that all fit together? I think we, all of these pieces, when we're playing them, we're trying to create a sense of immediacy, spontaneity, um, and sort of recreate the sense of discovery when these pieces were first held, and that's what pulls them together. So this Haydn movement we're going to play in a few minutes is a, a very lively kind of scherzo with a lot of jokes in it, and kind of if you were trying to dance to it, you'd have a few issues. You'll hear a little drone section, which is fun. Um, so I think there's a spirit of delight um, and sometimes surprise that runs through the whole program. Great. You know what I wondered? You, Jim just mentioned the Beethoven and the, Haid, uh, Beethoven and the Haydn, but I wonder whether there are people that are modern. I mean, everybody knows Haydn, everybody knows Handel, everybody knows Bach, everybody knows the, the from centuries ago. But are there people, like in the last 200 years, that we're going to remember centuries going forward? I mean, who are the great composers, contemporaries now, or like in the last 200 years, you think? I mean, that's a, such a great question, and I wish I could give you the answer. I think all one can do is to really commit to the contemporary pieces that one's playing. And, yeah. give, and certainly this piece is getting fantastic reactions, and then just hope for the best that they'll be for later ages as well. Edward, the answer was supposed to be Anguinyama. Well, that's what you're supposed to say <laughs> since she composed the second piece. But I'll help you out here. So, gentlemen, if you want to gently put your headphones down and join your colleagues uh, for this piece by Haydn, which you'll be playing in a second. Do you have the ticket information there, Marjorie, you want to share with people? If I have the ticket information, let me see right here. Uh, okay. Uh, yes. You can get tickets. The website is celebrityseries.org. That's celebrityseries.org. And the performance is tonight at the New England Conservatory's Jordan Hall in collaboration with the Celebrity Series of Boston. And here they are. Talkash, welcome to you all.
absolutely gorgeous. We're going to hear another song in just a couple of minutes and we're going to talk to the musicians again. And I want to mention again, if you are trying to get to this concert tonight, tickets are available at CelebritySeries.org. Now joining us is Richard O'Neill, one of the four members of uh, Takash, and Harumi Rhodes. Welcome to you both. It's great. That was beautiful. Thank you. Thank you. Can I say one thing? What? As great as the sound is, I say this all the time about live music, watching you play is almost as wonderful as listening to you play. It's so different when you're in the presence of the musicians. So we really urge people to go tonight and thank you for doing this. Yeah, really cheers to live to music. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Exactly. Cheers to live music. So Harumi, I understand you're uh, a friends with the composer Yama, who's done Flow, which is totally otherworldly. So tell us about the composer and tell us about the song. Yeah, so Tula um, is a wonderful, wonderful violist. And so we met uh, over 20 years ago as chamber musicians, as friends. And we were playing in, in the summer in a summer festival and got to know her. So I know her as a performer. Um, and uh, uh, in, in the recent past, um, I heard some of her compositions. She's become a composer as well. And I was just amazed at how her personality, her performance personality comes through in the, in the composing. And she's a virtuoso. A, a, yeah, she's amazing. A, an incredible woman and with lots of positive energy. And after hearing this, some of her pieces, um, I spoke to the guys and we approached her about uh, writing something for us. So um, it was very exciting. So let's speak to one of the guys. <laughs> so Richard, I think we learned that Andrash and Edward have been playing together 31 years. How long have you two been part of this? I'm the newest newbie. How uh, new is new? <laughs> June of 2020. Mm-hmm. And I think Harumi was in uh, 2018. 2018. So it, how long does it take for new players to mesh as beautifully as you just did with two people who have been playing together for a long time, Harumi? I mean, there's so many ways to answer that question. Um, I think we had kind of 
a whole um, mixture of of things going on. Richard and I have been playing together for, for oh. also over twenty years. Oh, you have? Yeah, we've known oh, each other for a long oh, time. We were oh, classmates, great. and and uh, where Rich, where uh, we both went to Juilliard, we did. Um, and we also um, spent some summers at the Marlboro Music Festival and toured okay. together and did right. lots of fun projects together. So it's a small classical music world, in case you didn't notice. <laughs> <laughs> and we've all intertwined and played together in the past. But but to to really gel together as a group, um, you know, it takes time on one hand, but uh, on the other hand, you really learn on the job. You learn on stage. And so that's what makes it so fun, I think. So tell us, Richard, about flow. I understand this is supposed to be something about what it sounded like at the beginning of the universe, like the Big Bang and and before and right after the Big Bang. Yes, um, Tula has a divinity degree from from Harvard, um, and she has a lot of... um, amazing interests um, and she spent quite a bit of time trying to figure out that I think the assignment was the natural world um, what we're going to play for you today is um, the third movement so the first movement deals with the Big Bang mm-hmm. this third movement is a quark scherzo yeah. Yeah. I'm sorry. I don't even Can know what a quark again, is <laughs> you've got to explain to the non-physics people exactly. what a quark is well a violist trying to explain physics <laughs> How about two radio talk show hosts (laughs) trying to understand physics? The literal translation of a scherzo was a joke, so let me go ahead. Um, uh, In physics, I believe um, a proton is made up of uh, two up quarks, two positively charged quarks, and one down quark. And a neutron is uh, made up of two down quarks and one up quark. Okay, here's the deal. You cannot look at your iPad. Say that again. Go ahead. <laughs> a proton. <laughs> it's okay. So how now, does that manifest itself in the music? How does, that, how does this play out in the music, Hiromi? Yeah, so I think, um, you know, it's this scherzo or this sort of... Um, Fast dance-like music. Is that what scherzo means? Well, it's sort of a joke. It's sort of oh, like okay. a it's like a minuet Oops. or a waltz okay, or something okay. in three okay. that has that um, uh, dance-like quality. And so it's kind of a musical, a humorous musical representation of these quarks, these these smaller fundamental um, components that make up all of matter. And so th- it's a very cool way of, of musically showing that in kind of a humorous, positive way. I know, I know Richard wanted to just... Um, yeah, some weird oh, do thing it. you're what do doing you do? with yeah. the bow. So I'm not just holding it as that a prop. I, but that I read about that you're supposed to do with the bow. and going to do the, it. Yeah, so, so Richard was going to show just the quark um, representation. So what Tula does, it's a little bit like a lot of old composers, what they, what they do. They use pitches to represent um, different concepts. So the down... The down quarks um, and the up quarks are no- notated, so the, the proton Thank you. is the up, two ups, and then there's a down, and then there's two down. And um, hydrogen and helium play a huge part of the piece, mm-hmm. so she actually notates those um, periodic elements in the piece. So this mm-hmm. whole, if you, when you listen to this a live performance we're going to play for you. You'll hear Andras on the cello start this entire piece with those quark pitches. And does Andras have to reach down to the floor to start them? <laughs> I read that. He's going to have to really lay, go down there. You have to come tonight to see all of the, oh, okay. all of the okay. stuff. So obviously this woman is... They have to join a, their colleagues in about okay. 30 seconds. Super genius. I mean, 
composes, yes. performs, yes. quarks, physics, the it's whole her thing. her body. She okay. would know. Okay, yeah. so that's the deal. Okay, super genius. So what piece of flow are you playing for us? We're going to play the third movement, the quark scherzo. Qu- oh, great. Yeah. Fabulous. Yeah. Thank you. 
Thanks for listening to the Best of Boston Public Radio podcast from GBH. Our crew is Zoe Matthews, Aidan Conley, Nicole Garcia, Hannah Loss. Our engineer is John the Claw Parker. Our executive producer is Jamie Bologna. You want to hear the full show? Download our full show podcast or tune in to 89.7 GBH 11 to 2 each weekday. Today's episode was produced by Zoe Matthews. <laughs>